Well, uh, one of the main questions that uh, a couple folks sent in is, how do you go about um, attempting con to convince a committed dispensationalist of, of this great uh, post-millennial vision um, when, when they uh, apply many of those promises just to the millennial? You know, I think one of the things that is effective uh, is saying, okay, can you show me that in the Bible? And just take them straight back to the Word. I, you know, uh, our inclination is to hand them a book. Our, our inclination is to say, oh, you should listen to this podcast. Or, or our inclination is to argue with them. But I, I think the most effective thing is just to let them read the Bible and say, okay, show me that in Scripture. And then, well, let's read that together. But what, what does the verse in front of it say? Uh, what, what does the verse after it say? Now, the, you know, the famous passage in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy about how bad the world is, is becoming concludes with the declaration, and they shall make no further progress. The, so, somehow the dispensationalists always leave off that verse. And they just talk about how people will be, you know, pleasers of themselves and all these uh, perverse corruptions. They shall make no further progress. Why shall they make no further progress? Because the gospel is the expulsive power of a new affection. So. Um, years ago, I, this is something that, um, apart from whatever your eschatological position is formally or ac actually, every sincere Christian rejoices at the possible prospect of what we're talking about. So um, it, it really is good news. And it, it has the force of good news when it's embraced as good news and portrayed as good news. One time I had, many years ago on the East Coast, I had the opportunity to preach in a hardcore dispensational church. And I preached as, as a Was pastor. it mine? <laughs> no. <laughs> In that hardcore dispensational church, I preached a high-octane post-mill sermon. And I didn't use any eschatological words. I didn't talk about the last days. I didn't do any of that. But it was all high-octane post-mill stuff. And my, my sermon topic was missions. I was just preaching missions and the success of missions. And they loved it. Right? They just ate it out of a can with a spoon, and, and they were just, this because every true Christian rejoices at the prospect of people becoming Christians. And who, who could be against that? So they might conclude at the end of the day, this is too good to be true, or I don't go quite as far as you do. But they're not going to be angry with you for, for rejoicing in the power of King Jesus, the authority of King Jesus, and the saving efficacy of his blood. They might say, well, I think it's good, but not that good. Um, they're, but they're not going to be hostile if you couch it, if you center it in evangelism, gospel, uh, as opposed to uh, deracinated post-millennialism. Post when the gospel fell out of it, that turned into Woodrow Wilson's uh, make the world safe for democracy foolishness, which is terrible. So secularized post-millennial <coughs> thinking is awful. But if Christ is at the center, it's not. 
Yeah, there's a difference between the triumphalism of secular optimism and the wonder of resting in the finished work of Jesus. There's a huge difference. And um, unfortunately, we've not always communicated that well. Yeah, can you guys uh, flush, somebody ask along those lines, as they've sort of shared the, uh, the post-millennial vision amongst, uh, amongst their friends, their, their friends are turned off because of it sounding too much like secular progressivism, um, which uh, also believes in some sense that things are gonna get better and better. Um, how do you avoid sounding like progressives in our optimism about the, about the future, keeping Christ at the center? Um, there's, a, there's a great book by a guy named Arthur Herman called The Idea of Decline in Western culture, something like that, I, The Idea of Decline. And we, we think that progressivism is an idea, which it is, but we also think that regress, or things going back to, to an earlier primitive form, is not an idea. We think that's just reality. But that's a concept. Uh, regress is a concept. Progress is a concept. And for both of them, you need a theological foundation. And if you take away the theological foundation, then it's going to, be, it's going to turn toxic. The Christian worldview has a place for backsliding, regress. For the concept of backsliding, not for backsliding itself. Um, so there's a foundation we can explain regress. We can explain progress. This is the work of God. But if you have this abstract idea of progress or regress, you're going to have secular pessimism or secular baseless optimism. So it's got to have Jesus. Um, uh, like that old song, Denomination Blues. It's got to have Jesus. That's all. And if Jesus is in it. Uh, central, then I think that your Bible-believing dispensational friends are going to have a hard time dismissing it as, you know, liberalism. Now, one of the things that we've done is we've allowed the politicalized uh, language and mindset of the modern world to define all categories. So we talk about left and right, which is a concept that comes out of the French Revolution. Uh, we uh, look at progress in terms of material progress, typically, uh, which is a Marxist idea. And so a part of our, our difficulty is we're using language that is larded uh, with political presuppositions, these ideas that Doug is talking about. And so what we've got to do is we've got to strip that away. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about uh, forcing someone to take their thoughts all the way home. Uh, enable them to start to see, okay, well, you know, you're using uh, th this politicalized language. You know, if, if, if we really, as Christians, uh, want to bring blessing upon the world, do we just want to be conservatives? Just conserve this point? No, we're the, we're, we're the ultimate progressives in the sense that we're bringing the great progress of hope and liberty to the whole of the world. And so a part of what we've got to do is we've got to strip away that politicalized, Americanized language. I think it was Lewis that said the true progressive is the one that goes back to figure out where the mistake was made. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and then, then moves forward correcting the course. And what would be some books that you all have found most helpful, maybe along your journey, to, to coming to this optimistic eschatology? What were some of the books that were most helpful in shaping that and, and, and forming that? outside of the Bible? Well, I, I will say in the Bible, surprisingly, it's the book of Hebrews that most shaped my, my, my vision of, of 
eternal optimism. Uh, but aside from that, I, I, and let me put in a plug, I think Doug's book, um, uh, Heaven Misplaced, is really foundational, really helpful. It's quintessentially Doug with great stories and, and sizzling writing and... Available for $15.99 at the Canon Press. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really, really good. And uh, I highly commend it. For me, Paradise Restored by David Chilton was huge. I had already uh, moved from, uh, from premillennialism and dispensationalism to historic pre-mill, and I had abandoned all of that, and I camped out in that DMZ called panmillennialism. Uh, by the time I read uh, the early drafts of Chilton's book, and I think I was post-mill by page 14. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, two, two recommendations. One is He Shall Have Dominion by Ken Gentry. Uh, that's a great book for, if you want to use it as a resource, if you have friends who say, what about Thessalonians, or what about this verse, or what about that verse? It's a go-to reference book for all the questions that might come up. It has a great index Yeah, that. He, fantastic scripture index. He, he Shall Have Dominion by Ken Gentry. Um, Paradise Restored was the book I was reading when I became post-mill. And it wasn't the book so much that convinced me that what I was reading, I had become a non-millennialist, which is a bad place for a preacher to be, you know. Jesus is coming again, don't push me. You know, I, I can't tell you anything. Don't know when, don't know how, don't know where. Don't know to what it's I was a, a non-millennialist, Jesus is coming again, and that's all I know. And, and I was reading in, Chilton's book, and I, he quoted 1 Corinthians 15, and he, when he quoted it, it says, and he shall, uh, uh, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. He just quoted, he was quoting that part of an argument, and when he, I read that verse, something snapped in my head, like a dry twig or something. And I had all these verses floating around, question marks in the Psalms next to passages, like, what, what the heck? Um, <laughs> I couldn't make Certainly, sense. he doesn't mean from shore to shore. <laughs> I wonder what from the river to the ends of the earth might mean. <laughs> so I had all these verses that I just sort of were floating around, and then for he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. And that thing snapped in my head, and it was the most exhilarating worldview experience I've ever had, where all of these verses began to flutter together. Like a like a transformer, and, and you know, and it was, it was the only paradigm paradigm shift I went through that was actually fun. Put your hands up and say we. <laughs> I can't believe it. he must reign until he's put all his enemies under. You mean he's in heaven reigning now, and he's going to stay there until all his enemies are his footstool. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, in what I've been taught, what I grew up with, the first enemy to be destroyed is death. When he comes back, the first enemy to go down is death, and then everything else. Well, Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And they're all subdued under his feet with Christ in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and he's going to come again to deliver the coup de grace. French. Um, <laughs> Good. 
there yet be a revival breakout. It's not what the dispensationalists say, which is a coup de main. It's a coup de bras. Don't want to indulge Francis too much here. Um, just as a uh, to highlight, uh, there is some recommended reading in your um, in your booklets that have some of those books listed. Uh, the one on the on the top of the list is one of the, one of the ones that was influential for me um, coming coming to the postmillennial viewpoint. It's Ian Murray's Puritan Hope, which ties in really well with um, missions. It was the the, the that optimistic um, eschatology of the 1700s, 1800s that brought about one of the largest missionary enterprises. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, if, if we're talking about missions and eschatology, uh, do you see that as we endeavor to recover this optimistic uh, eschatology, um, it go, why does it go hand in glove with missions? Well, that, that book, um, the journey for me finished when I was reading Children, but it started with Ian Murray's Puritan Hope. Because I, I read the Puritan Hope, I, I had taken a dim view of re revival because I had read something by Charles Finney and I thought, oh my gosh, that's terrible. <laughs> and and it, like E.W. Tozer once said, if revival means more of what we're doing now, we most emphatically do not need a revival. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't like the idea of this work it up, work gin up the emotion of revival. So I just dropped the idea of re reformation and revival. And then I uh, read Puritan Hope, and I thought, oh. And I realized that this was a missions evangelism-oriented outlook. And, and I became convinced that the, the earth was, when I became convinced that the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters there would see, this was Ian Murray through Chilton. Then I looked around and said, well, not this way, it's not going to. You know, and what's, then I realized that this historically is a fruit that has grown on one kind of tree, and that's Calvinistic Reformed soteriology on fire, preaching the gospel. And that took me back to Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, that kind of reformation. Right yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, what I, I see is once we have this great and glorious hope, wild horses can't keep us back. But once we catch this vision, we have a heart for missions. We want to know what our missionaries are doing instead of, you know, just this sort of uh, marginalized thing on the back bad bulletin board at church uh, with uh, quarterly letters or something. We're, we're suddenly engaged. These are people we know. They're on the front lines. We want to stand with them. We want to be engaged with them. We want to see the work expand. We want to send our kids and our grandkids and, and let them go. And so I think once we catch a glimpse of the beauty and the joy of the gospel, we, we, we can't help ourselves. Um, we, we, we have to sing it. Yeah. Reminds me of something uh, uh, Spurgeon once said, that if for the next 10,000 years there's not another convert, it, it would still be incumbent upon the church to, with greater force, with greater vigor, to send her sons and daughters with greater energy uh, to, the, to the foreign shore. And I remember reading that going, that's, that's the post-millennial vision. It's saying, we're not doing it based on the fruit that's being born. We're doing it out of obedience to the, to the commission. And you, you read the stories of the great missionaries, the years that they spend on the field before, you know, losing wives and children and uh, before they see a single convert. Yeah. You know, William, William Carey had established 
a printing press, a newspaper, a, a, a day school, and a college uh, before he had three converts. Uh, Doug, can you talk about uh, Smash Mouth? Somebody asks, talk about Smash Mouth incrementalism and maybe how this ties into uh, uh, postmodernism. Okay, the, the problem with the problem when you're looking at uh, societal horrors like the carnage of abortion, let's say, or the, the cultural social impact that we expect the gospel to have, you must, uh, when, when the Apostle Paul arrived in Rome, the gladiatorial games were going on, right? There were people being slaughtered, people... Uh, but Paul's strategy was to plant churches, preach the gospel. He knew, I believe that Paul knew, long-term, those, those games have got to go. But he didn't arrive in Rome and start circulating a petition or organize a protest in order to stop it. He knew that the only thing that's going to stop that kind of thing is going to be gospel preaching, churches everywhere. Uh, so secular cultures of necessity are bloodthirsty. That if there's if Jesus, if, if Jesus and His shed blood is not the center of everything, then it's going to be us shedding blood. It, it just has to be that way. And you can't outlaw. You you can't just say, guys, let's stop doing that, because they won't. And you have no. If you've abandoned the gospel, you must. You're going to lose. So. Smash mouth incrementalism, the smash mouth part, means that you never lose sight of the fact that when Jesus has control of this place, abortion is going to be against the law, period. It's murder, right? You, you treat it for what it is, you name it for what it is, you never stop naming it for what it is. At the same time, you have to lay the foundation for a truly effective push against it. And that has to be a vibrant presence of many Christians and courageous preachers, etc. The problem with incrementalism is that people lose their way, right? They they become incrementalists, and then they call you know in some quarters they'll call they, they'll call abortion murder, but they don't want to treat it like murder. They want to fundraise off of it being murder, but they don't want to legislate in terms of it being murder. And that's but enough about Congress. <laughs> but enough about yeah. Congress. That's 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 pro-life um, activism that has lost its way. Right, um, but if we are avowedly Christian, then we have the map in front of us. Our our goal is to take Berlin, going back to the Second World War. But I don't lose sight of the fact that I'm just currently on the beach trying to take that hill. That's the incremental part. The smash mouth part is you never surrender the idea of we're in this. We're we're getting that, that's where we're going. Jesus is king here. Jesus is. I, I'm working right now on a revision of a book that I did years ago called Third Time Around, which essentially argues that the pro-life message is inextricably woven into the gospel message. It, it, it is the proclamation of life over death. And so missions is always going to be a confrontation of life over death. It always is, everywhere, because abortion is normal among fallen human beings. Uh, and if it's not abortion, if it's not sanitized, they find m more wicked and perverse ways to do the same kind of thing. So it's only the gospel that has ever confronted the minions of death. And so we're always going to have these battles. And un until uh, 
as uh, 1 Corinthians says, un un until every enemy has been subdued, there will be these outposts of wickedness. Our job is to simply continue to preach the gospel, proclaim it boldly, and, and uh, move to the next hill. Uh, is it, somebody asks, is it true, uh, the sort of caricature, that uh, pre-mill folks are generally a bit more zealous and, and energetic about evangelism? Um, and if so, if that's if that being the case, what, what can a post-mill lazy boy learn from them? I, I do think that they are more energetic in our day uh, in man the lifeboats evangelism. I, I do think they lead people to Jesus aggressively and they're interested in that. And we, we should do nothing toward that but respect it and honor it and hats off to it. But I, I do want to point out when, when people say, uh, well, the premillennialists are the evangelists and the postmillennialists haven't done anything. When we were becoming postmillennialists, there were probably 10 of them in North America. <laughs> there was Lorraine Bettner and a, you know, just a handful of people. Postmillennialism. When I found Doug, it was all the way across the world in this barren wasteland called Idaho, and I thought, there's another one! There's one out there! And so there's a, a legacy from the Reformation down to the mid-19th century. The post-millennial vision was mainstream evangelical reformed. It was, it was the central set of assumptions and was behind the great missionary uh, David Livingston, uh, Carey, the Puritan, all the Puritan Hope guys, uh, they're post-millennialists. Then there was a century where pre-mill thinking swept through the English-speaking world and became the dominant uh, position. And up to a generation ago, uh, there weren't any post-millennialists to do any evangelizing. There, there were. So, uh, <laughs> so if you said uh, uh, Spurgeon wasn't post-mill, but he was not, he was optimistic. He had an optimistic eschatology. He was optimistic pre-mill. Uh, he was a great evangelist. You, when, you, when you look at the great evangelists of church history, overwhelmingly post-mill post or post-mill oriented. So I think that if we have a resurgence of post-millennial thinking, and give us a minute, you know, we just got our breath back. We just got out of ICU, just got out of the hospital. You guys got to take a sip of this. It's good. <laughs> we, um, I, I think give us a minute. Well, I think we're, uh, every, every time the, the, the pre-mill guy is going out and evangelizing, he's being post-millennial. Yeah. You know, he's, he's trusting in the efficacy of the gospel to change the heart of those that he's uh, preaching his word. Everybody's a Calvinist and everybody's post-mill on their knees. <laughs> Amen, and there's much rejoicing. Uh, somebody's lazy and doesn't want to learn French has Jefferson's, uh, the, the book that Jefferson was giving away hasn't been translated into English. It has been translated into English, but you really should read it in the French. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> no, the book is actually not very good. It's, uh, it, it's just... It's, it's not available at the Canon Press, but don't worry. <laughs> no. It's just that the idea was so revolutionary, and uh, the, the concept of it, it was, it was like us sitting here in Moscow, Idaho going, so really the church in Iran and Saudi Arabia is growing faster than the churches in say, uh, Colombia, South America, or 
in West, really? We, we know how fast the churches are growing. Are they really having baptisms in Iran of five or six hundred believers at a single baptism every week? Is this really going on? It's just so revolutionary. So the book is not that great. It's just that it introduced this idea that here was this Mongol Empire and there was this seeded idea from the most feeble witness imaginable and it changed the world. Someone asks, uh, uh, to what is Matthew 24, uh, 40, and 41 referring? Is, it, is there a sudden, on-the-spot removal of certain individuals, or is that merely a dramatic way of describing the contrasting eschatological trajectories of the elect and the reprobate? You want to get it? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's describing the judgment on Jerusalem. And um, so it's, it, it is describing the sweeping away of the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, the, those uh, who, unlike uh, the warnings in, um, in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, where Jeremiah says, do not believe these deceptive words, the temple, the temple, the temple. We are safe because of the temple. Uh, Matthew 24 is, is saying... Um, sorry, guys, not so. Is that what verses 41? 40 and 41. 40 and 41. Uh, so, yeah, the, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. In Luke, that same, uh, uh, that same phrase is used by the Lord. And the disciples say, where, Lord? You know, one's taken, one's left. And the Lord says, wherever the vultures uh, If you want to know where they are, look where the vultures are. Where the vultures are, there's, that's where the carcass is. Uh, and you think, what? That's an odd way to speak about the rapture. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about the bad guys here, not yeah, the good guys. The bad, guy, the bad guy's taken off to execution. The, the one's taken, one's left. The bad guy's taken off and slaughtered. It's the day of the Lord. And where, where are they taken? And Jesus said, well, just look in the sky. Uh, when you see the vultures, that's, that's, where, they, that's where they are. Uh, and some people have tried to uh, deal with that by saying, well, when Jesus appears, he's like the carcass, and we're like the vultures that, that <laughs> come off. <laughs> that's very least, that's not beautiful. <laughs> no, it, um, so basically, it's carrying birds, identifying where the carcasses are, because this is a prophecy in Matthew 24 of the great cataclysmic judgment that came on Jerusalem, 70 AD. in 70 AD, there were so many Jews crucified outside Jerusalem that it was like a forest. It was like walking through the woods, a cross with somebody hanging from each one. It was a horrific judgment. And when Jesus said nothing like it before, nothing like it after, he wasn't overstating it. It was a horrific uh, time, and he was telling us what it was going to be like. It really messes up the Larry Norman song when you understand it right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and give Larry Norman a haircut as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you uh, at lunch yesterday you mentioned that in some places all millennialism and post millennialism uh, come pretty close together, mm -hmm. um, and then there's other places where evil can evil can jump his, uh, his motorcycle across the chasm. Can you sort of highlight what you mean by um, some of those? Common spots, uh, 
and then some of the, the, the differences between us two. Well, Ian Murray is an optimistic amillennialist. <clears throat> and so he's writing the Puritan Hope. It's very optimistic, but uh, he's really unclear about how the consummation of all of this comes to pass. An amillennialist is just a pan-millennialist uh, with some book learning. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of a no man's land because there is, I mean, there is a reason why Calvin and Luther and so many others, uh, Spurgeon, uh, rarely ever preached from the book of Revelation. There, there are cautions that we have to have when we uh, venture into this territory. Uh, the idea of the, uh, of the millennium is seeded all through the promises of God but there's only six verses in, in the Bible that deal directly with it. So a post-millennialist is someone who will uh, look, look at those verses and tie together all of those previous promises and see this, this glorious crescendo consummation. Uh, and a millennialist is someone who says, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how it all comes together. The millennium is the thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. <laughs> Doug, what was your other, uh, the, the two greatest arguments for um, post-millennialism was Jonathan Edwards and it's a lot of fun. Oh, right. right. <laughs> yeah. any, any questions that you all have for each other? That, uh... I think we, we probably came to this position at about the same time and kind of it through the same process. And um, I, I probably connected with Chilton a little earlier than, than you did, but it, he was freaking us out. Uh, pretty, pretty. You read the manuscript, I became post-mill in the mid-80s. So, uh, and the, that was right after the book was printed, so if you were reading it. Yeah, I think the book, the book came out in 84, that sounds right. I think. Um, so it's, it's right in there. And you wrote a little uh, booklet. This is how I found you. You wrote a little booklet about love. Yeah, it's called Law and Love, and it was constructive criticism for reconstructions. Yeah. Um, David Chilton was a reconstructionist. All the, all the uh, post-mills, with the exception of Lorraine Bettner, who wrote a, uh, a book called The uh, all the early postal guys that I was reading were reconstructionists. And, and I really liked how they tried to apply the Bible to everything. I really liked, uh, I was attracted to the optimism, uh, but they also had these bloody wars among themselves, and I didn't think that, so I gave some uh, theonomy I thought required more love than what was being displayed in, in that movement, and so that's where I published that little booklet, uh, but I, I wasn't in any really real doctrinal position to offer that criticism, though I think it was right. Yeah, it, it was, I read it, and I thought, oh, who is this guy, and why is he in Idaho, and uh, <laughs> at, at, at that point, um, I, it was I, almost I, as good as Central Asia. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> you even have vandals. <laughs> it was their band that said winning seasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. 
So I, yeah, I do have a question that I've always wanted to hear you discuss, and maybe you discuss this in wordsmithy conferences and, and, and all of that, but what's your writing routine? Uh, so my writing, my writing routine is usually, most of, most of what I produce writing is written between uh, 6.30 and 8.30 in the morning. So I get up, take a shower, and do, do my writing then, and then off to work. And so 80, 90% of the writing is um, in the mornings during that slot. That's, that's the routine. So I sit down and write. But it's- And every, every day? As most every day, I'd say probably five days out of seven, uh, probably. Uh, but my writing routine is, routine is not what you should call it. I, I write for the same reason that dogs bark. <laughs> Annoying dogs bark. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> you, uh, you, you have a habit of always reading novels. <clears throat> You're always in a novel. Right. Why? So I've, I've, the general spread of reading is what, you know, what it is, there's a bunch of books going on, but I want the core of my reading to always contain a bucket book, a, a bucket list book, a book that I really should have read by this time in my life, but I haven't for some strange reason. So I'm always chipping away at a bucket book. I got movie bit done that way. Um, so a bucket book, then a book of poetry, and the book I'm reading is, you know, whatever book I'm reading, uh, pursuing, and then a book of fiction. Of, of, and, and the book of fiction is there because basically I, I think it's important for Christians who are engaging with culture not to be theology wonks, not to be tunnel envisioned. So that's why the poetry, that's why the fiction. Um, and I think we need to be uh, Hyperion, sort of across the waterfront in, in what we're doing. So tell us the novel you're reading right now. Right now the work of fiction then uh, it's uh, a series of plays, radio plays, that Dorothy Sayers did called The Man Born to be King. And I'm, I'm working through uh, those. Tell us about your latest book. <laughs> <laughs> it was dark, they were big. <laughs> so the book that's coming out, there's a soft, I saw some on the, on the table. Uh, the Man in the Dark is a historical romance that I wrote. And with that, <laughs> uh, let's thank Dr. Grant. <laughs> <laughs>